Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. With episode 505 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back once again and it is Thursday, so you know exactly what that means. We are here to break down everything that happened this week in NXT and AEW, but not only that, we have a quite interesting conversation to have at the end of this show, as NXT and AEW next week will be going head-to-head, I believe, for the first time in two and a half years, with AEW Dynamite being moved to Tuesday, Tony Khan is doing a special title Tuesday episode, and WWE, on its own obviously, is countering that with some huge names joining NXT. There is a lot to discuss there, so be sure to stick with us. We're going to do the NXT breakdown. We're going to do the AEW breakdown, but at the end of the show, we're going to preview next week and provide some much-needed context about what is happening on Tuesday night. With all of that said, let's get into today's show. First, as always, with some reminders. We'll begin by telling you that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is all about So please be sure to leave some five-star ratings for us across Apple Podcasts and Spotify on Apple. Take a little extra time while you're there. Leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. Already have a new one that we will be reading, of course, on Tuesday's upcoming episode. So add to the fun. Leave that five-star review. We will read yours as well. Please do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast, not only for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, all of that good stuff, but so you can vote in our pre- and post-show polls surrounding premium live events. We do have WWE Fastlane coming up this Saturday, so we want you to vote in those polls. And of course, we will reference the results on our Instant Analysis podcast Saturday night as soon as that show goes off the air. Also, don't forget, I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well, because for $5 a month or 50 for the entire year, you can become an official getting overhead. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over, sign up, you get bonus audio instant reactions. We've already done three this week for Raw, NXT, and AEW Dynamite, and you get news posts every single Friday. That is exclusive news that we provide to you, our getting overheads. Again, buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. It's only $5 a month. 50 for the entire year. You get to support what is hopefully your favorite professional wrestling podcast. And you also help keep us on the air, though. Just a little bit of a heads up. I may be making another request regarding something like that in the coming weeks. All that said, folks, let's get into today's show. We do have a ton to cover. As mentioned, Uh, we're going to talk NXT. We're going to talk AEW. And then we're going to talk NXT versus AEW. So be sure to check our episode description we will have timestamps for each segment. If you only want to hear one or the other, or you just want to hear about next week, you have the ability to go ahead and do that. Uh, but again, I just hope all of you listen to the entire show. Now, normally coming out of premium live events and pay-per-views when we do shows like this, we'll do a second look. And in this case, that would be for NXT No Mercy and AEW Wrestle Dream. I did rewatch certain key elements of No Mercy. I did rewatch a couple matches at Wrestle Dream, I actually don't really have any second look to provide. I thought the match grades were on point that we did live those particular nights. Uh, the opinions on what happened on those shows hit 
you know, pretty accurately based on uh, my review. The one thing I noticed that I did not give enough credit to was the Bakersfield, California crowd for NXT. They were fantastic all night. They made NXT No Mercy feel like some takeovers used to feel. So they deserve a lot of credit. Also, commentary was on point. Vic Joseph, man, like, I don't really know what the plan is with him, but anyone with ears and eyes too, but anyone with ears knows that this guy should be calling the action on the main roster. I know they gave him that, what was it, like a two-month tryout or whatever. It was such a weird combination with him, what was it, Jerry the King Lawler and Mace, I guess it ended up being, um, on commentary for Raw for that period of time, and it totally did not work. I don't really think it was his fault, but he is so great in NXT that it is crystal clear he should either be on the second show, whether it's Raw or SmackDown, whichever one Michael Cole is not on, or what they might be doing is considering Vic the heir apparent to Michael Cole. So they're keeping him in NXT on this third brand, and maybe they don't move him up until Cole is ready to either retire or take a significant step back in his week-to-week responsibilities. Then they have Vic that they can lean on. But Really, at this point, like I know he's married to Mackenzie Mitchell. I know um, she does backstage stuff for NXT, and I'm assuming they both live in Orlando because of that. And that all works. And maybe there's something else going on in their personal life where they just like the job that they're currently in, and they're the ones telling WWE, no, we want to stay where we are. I don't know. I would love to find out, and I will be inquiring about it. But I just don't get it. I don't know how you have someone as talented as Vic and you don't see a spot for him as the lead guy on Raw or SmackDown. He can totally handle it. The I know some people are not fans of Booker T on commentary. I don't understand that. I like laughing uh, when I listen to professional wrestling, and he is funny as hell. Um, does he sometimes get a little bit over his britches a little bit where you know it's, it's a little too much in the comedy and not enough calling the action? Sure. I think Booker as part of a three-man booth would really make a lot of sense, but NXT, you cannot do a three-man booth. So they are a great team right now for NXT. Vic and Booker T uh, are really solid. Vic and Wade Barrett were certainly special. Uh, Wade moving into the SmackDown role because Pat McAfee left made a lot of sense. So Wade and Michael Cole right now are doing a great job. And of course, now they're of course on Raw. They moved that. Uh, But Vic and Booker, for me, they're hitting. So I wanted to give them credit as well. Uh, Every single match I want to point out on NXT this week, moving ahead, obviously, to what happened on Tuesday night, every single match that involved women was longer than Tegan Knox versus Chelsea Green on Monday Night Raw. And not only was every match longer, there were six total matches on NXT. Four of them involved women. And I saw some some on the far reaches of the IWC, the part that we try not to ever look at. People were actually criticizing Shawn Michaels, of all people, for not having enough women on NXT last week because there was only one women's match. This is a guy who has built entire episodes where every match involved women, where having four of six women's matches on a show like they had on Tuesday is commonplace. So one week they happen to have one women's match and it's like the end of the world and now NXT is shit too. There is no one, and I say this as someone who does not watch Impact Weekly and understands they have a very strong women's division and do a good job, but I I don't watch it, so I can't 
specifically speak to it. But between WWE and AEW, so Paul Levesque, Shawn Michaels, and Tony Khan, no one books the women better than Shawn Michaels does, and no brand books the women better than NXT does. So let's just be very clear about that. Anyone criticizing him previously made no sense whatsoever. And this week, not only did they put the women front and center, uh, but again, every single match was longer than what we got with Tegan and Chelsea, which I heavily criticized Monday night on Raw. But that's enough of that. Let's get into the full breakdown of NXT. As I said, we'll follow with AEW, and then we will get to the Tuesday head-to-head battle at the end of this show. So starting with NXT, Ilya Dragunov entered about 30 minutes into the show. He put himself over and said Carmelo Hayes pushed him all the way to his limit. He promised to elevate the title and defend it with his life. Trick Williams interrupted, offering congratulations, saying he was out there to celebrate himself. Trick thanked Ilya for pushing him so hard that he gained a new level of confidence. Dragunov said he was proud of him and said the catchphrase whooped that trick before dapping him up. Then Hayes entered. He was limping. Melo gave Ilya props, but asked Trick why he was thinking Dragunov when Hayes has been behind him for years and is even more proud of him for what he accomplished. He cautioned both of them that winning a title is one thing, defending it is another. Dragunov said that it wasn't his business. They were having their own conversation and Mello interrupted the champions, basically. Hayes reiterated that Williams needs to concentrate on Dominic Mysterio and not celebrating on this night. Dom came out, Trick hit him with a Michael Jackson line. Mello promised to be in Trick's corner like old times. Mysterio called Williams out for still being in Hayes' shadow, and Trick, the ultimate babyface, decided to do it on his own. Fatal flaw of an overconfident face. This was an awesome segment weaving through all three guys and their various relationships with one another. My assumption coming out of it was that Trick would be by himself, Dom would have JD McDonough with him, and Mello could do like I told you so deal coming out of it when Trick loses the title. I did hope that we would see a new NXT title challenger step up on the show. We didn't see that. There is still plenty of time before NXT deadline, which is in December. Uh, Braun Breaker confronted Mello backstage, trying to level with him for being the only one who knows how it feels to lose on the big stage like that. Braun was goading him, saying he knows all the frustration and rage is bothering him. Breaker told Hayes to bottle all that up and destroy as many people as possible with it, including Trick Williams. Braun pointed that Trick... Uh, wasn't waiting for Mello after his match. He had to actually go find him at the end of the show because Trick was off celebrating somewhere. And Mello seemed to consider what he was pitching. What Braun said, let's be clear, was accurate. You had that final cut scene uh, after NXT No Mercy where Mello has to go find Trick and Trick wasn't waiting for him in Gorilla um, to celebrate with him. Baron Corbin then confronted Dragunov saying he beat Breaker at No Mercy and is the only other guy with a win over Ilya and therefore should be the next number one contender. Mello got interviewed in the parking lot later saying he wasn't taking Braun's advice and requested a match with Breaker next week. Then he revealed that John Cena called him and gave him advice to get off the mat and keep going just like he had to do 15 times after losing all of his titles. Vic Joseph was so excited hearing that Cena would be on the show that he turned around and dapped up like a random fan while announcing it. It was really funny. The Braun Mello segment was really smart as a continuation of the story from No Mercy, the bonus scene after the main event being that reference, and then to create doubt as to Mello's motivation, both in offering to get tricks back and now after Williams denied him, that made a lot of sense. Plus, it also made logical sense for Breaker to seek out Hayes given how he snapped after dropping the title. And then you get the Cena announcement. Like, holy shit, that is wild. That is going down to NXT. Now, we're going to talk more about that 
reasoning and all of this later, as I mentioned, it's at the very end of the show, because there were a couple of similar announcements that we're going to talk about soon. Regarding Corbin, he certainly made a legit point. He would be a big name for Ilya to beat. And as I mentioned, coming out of that first segment, I was waiting to find out, well, who's going to be the number one contender who steps up? We finally got it later in the show. So let's move to the main event, which was the North American Championship trick defending against Dom. Rhea Ripley walked out with Dom, and then both Finn Balor and Damian Priest were there too. So I got that one completely wrong in terms of who I thought would be there. Williams hit a Uranagi called Bookend, obviously, by Booker T. Uh, Ripley threw her title into the ring with Trick bending down to get it, only to eat a DDT on the title for a false finish. Williams then ate a 619, but he blocked a frog splash with double knees and hit a jumping knee on both Mysterio and McDonough, who did run in. Priest slid in his briefcase. The referee saw that, picked it up, threw it out of the ring. As he did that, Trick ate a title shot from Balor with the referee distracted, and then Mysterio frog splashed him into the back to regain the title and close the show. So I was like kind of right about McDonough. This went exactly as it should have given the booking. Williams wanted to stand on his own two feet, despite knowing he would be at a numbers disadvantage. The disadvantage became even more prominent than he could have ever expected, and it cost him the title with some typical heel cheating. It does suck, let's get it clear, that Trick had to drop the title like 72 hours after winning it, but this is a classic lesson about a babyface getting way too cocky. Mello was there to help him. Trick declined. Judgment Day said there would be people getting Dom's back. They said this on Raw and NXT. Trick still didn't listen to that. If you're angry about the title change for Trick in like reality, okay, that's fine. They gave us a full story to explain it that made perfect sense. Plus, it did take five people and two title shots to the head to beat Trick. So you want to talk about being kept strong in a loss? He was kept strong in a loss. Becky Lynch opened NBXT celebrating her title retention, putting Tiffany Stratton over for um, basically beating the piss out of each other. She said she wasn't cleared to compete yet, but targeted Halloween Havoc for her next title defense on NXT. Lyra Valkyrie interrupted, telling a story about being motivated to train in wrestling after seeing Becky in NXT and how Lynch inspired tons of Irish wrestlers. She said it was a dream to team with Becky, but it would be even better to fight her. Indy Hartwell then surprised, pointing out that she never lost the title and NXT was her home. Roxanne Perez was next and surprisingly got a couple boos. Roxy said she's done resting up and wants her title back. Lynch obviously wanted all three of them to fight it out and become a number one contender. Other than Becky, Indy was easily the most natural talker of the three. Lyra and Roxy were almost painfully scripted, though Lyra's promo did hit the best out of all of them. Really, both Lyra and Roxy should challenge for this title before Becky gives it up. And this was definitely a high-quality triple threat booking for the show. The crowd, though, was absolute shit because they gave Lyra what chance for no reason whatsoever she's a babyface, and then they booed Roxy for no reason whatsoever. It reminded me some of those early post-pandemic crowds that we criticized that actively hurt the show. And this was just another one of those examples. So I honestly wasn't that thrilled about the way the crowd acted here. Uh, But we got Lyra, Indy, and Roxy. Actually, before we get to that match, let me also state, I do understand Tegan Knox is on the main roster and Becky Lynch is doing an open challenge. Therefore, Tegan just taking the title opportunity on Raw is different than women in NXT having to earn it, but it is not really parallel when you think about it. Like someone should be able on NXT to just individually step up and say, I want to challenge you 
the same way Tegan did. So I, I criticize AEW about that all the time. I'm actually going to heavily criticize them about it later in the show. It's not an apples to apples comparison, but it is a little strange that Becky Becky's basically defending the title on two shows and the way that she's getting challengers is different on both of them. I did think that's worth mentioning. Anyway, Lyra, Indy, and Roxy in a triple threat. Bex was on commentary. Indy face-planted at one point. Roxy caught a Lyra kick and flung it into Indy's head before taking a Northern Light suplex bridge. Perez caught Hartwell with Pop Rocks out of the corner, only to get pulled out of the ring by Kiana James, who was then booted by Lynch. Valkyria took advantage with the splash onto Hartwell and got the win. I really should have had a sound drop made so I don't have to like repeat my take on Lyra's finisher or lack thereof every week, but you guys know what my take is. Uh, Tegan entered after the bell to confront Becky. She looked great in street clothes, like way better than she does in her normal gear. And I'm not talking about that from like an attractiveness standpoint. I'm just saying as like a competitor, she seemed way more serious and real in her street clothes than in like the gear that she wears on Raw or occasionally wears on Raw. She almost never wrestles. Uh, so I don't know. There's something, I, I feel like her gear needs to get tweaked is really the point of this. Uh, nice little match, nothing to write home about. Lyra was definitely the right winner. We mentioned before how it's clear Sean really believes in her. She gets rub from every single veteran that comes down there. And yeah, other than that, there really isn't much else to say about this. Uh, Kiana later backstage said she joined NXT the same time Roxy did, and she was sick of seeing her get all the opportunities. Didn't Kiana literally just challenge for the title? Like, what is she talking about? She also said she was sick of Roxy getting praised and wanted to make sure that when people thought about both of them, they thought about Kiana above Roxy. Then she announced that she did some negotiating and got Asuka down to NXT to fight Roxanne Perez next week. As if we needed more proof Asuka was not winning the title on Saturday, here she is in NXT on Tuesday. I'm excited for Perez and Asuka. I badly want to see that match, but it is kind of random as hell. So not only are Cena and Asuka coming down to NXT, there was a graphic that Cody Rhodes will be there to make a, quote, major announcement as well. So that's all three stars in Orlando making NXT a really big show. And then Paul Heyman ended NXT, kind of recapping what happened in the story, saying that since Cena will be in the corner of Mello, Heyman himself will be there to support Breaker. He at first made it sound like Roman Reigns would be there, which would have been hysterical. The guy doesn't show up on SmackDown, but shows up on NXT. And again, the context for all of this is that AEW Dynamite was moved off of Wednesday to Tuesday for a preemption one week. And these shows are going to be going head to head. So again, we will talk about that at the end of our AEW breakdown. Stay tuned for that conversation before the show concludes. We had Butch and Tyler Bate fight Gallus. Butch hit a moonsault on Wolfgang outside. Bate hit the rebound lariat on Mark Coffey. Then they combined for a two-man Tyler Driver 97 and the win. Joe Coffey immediately attacked. Ridge Holland returned to even the odds and pounced Joe out of the ring. The last time Ridge was in the performance center, he had that really awful injury, and I got such bad vibes seeing him run down the ramp across that exact same spot where he got hurt. I thought of it immediately, and it just gave me like, not chills, but just like one of those like where you kind of cringe up your hands. You're just like, oh, like, I don't want to see this guy in that spot. You know what I mean? Uh, this was all fine. Nothing special from a match standpoint. I presume we're getting a six-man soon, but after that, I just need a break from Gallus on TV Weekly. Like, I'm glad the Brawling Brutes are getting usage while Sheamus is injured. That's a positive, but Gallus just, you guys know, it's not really hitting for me. 
Uh, Gigi Dolan fought Blair Davenport. Gigi attacked before the bell. Blair tried to use a chair, but Gigi avoided. Then Dolan tried to use the chair. The referee stole it. Davenport took it back and he intercepted it. And then Dolan won via roll-up. This was very much not my shit. Clunky wrestling, stupid story in a regulation match, all just so we could not get a definitive finish and see it again down the line. I'm massively bored by this. I'm bored, brother. Kalani Jordan fought Izzy Dame in the first NXT breakout tournament match. They announced all the women before the tournament began, and I learned Kalani is from Boynton Beach, Florida, which is literally the next city over from me. So I thought that was really cool. Izzy did like a perpendicular torture rack over her shoulder, but Jordan came back with a split leg moonsault for the win. It is crazy how every single time Kalani gets in the ring, she's better than she was the last time. It's noticeable improvement. Arrow is pointing up for her in a major way. And lastly, Thea Hale and JC Jane fought Electra Lopez and Lola Vice. Thea and JC were all goffed out preparing for their match when Chase U walked up reading a Twitter argument before the four win. Uh, the guys asked if they could support them. Thea denied she didn't want chaperones out there, but JC thought it would actually be a good idea to have them on her side. The guys were pleasantly surprised by that. Then they did a hands in the middle deal like and break, like one of those. But before they could break, I don't know if anyone else noticed this. Jane, her hand was on the bottom. She slid it all the way to the top of the pile to assert dominance. I love that little detail. I don't even know how I noticed it, to be honest with you. Thea also purposely struggled to try and like dance sexy before the bell. That was kind of funny. Hale eventually won with the Kimura lock on Lopez. The guys were extremely happy at the result. There wasn't really much to take away from it, other than that this storyline has been a lot of fun. So before we wrap up NXT, I did get a DM question from K-Dog at K-Dog8292. He said, out of everyone in NXT, who is the most promising talent? This is honestly an immensely difficult question because there are so many young, talented folks there. I think it's extremely obvious that Tiffany Stratton, Braun Breaker, and Carmelo Hayes are going to have significant main roster careers. Trick Williams likely as well. And Ilya Dragunov, I don't really consider him developmental just because he's so freaking advanced. Though that group of five, and when I say five, I meant to include Roxanne Perez there as well. That group of five right there are almost like no-brainers. They will succeed. The only question is to what level. So when we look beyond that, at like who else is on that brand that either hasn't received full elevation as a singles performer yet or is still up and coming to a degree and like we're trying to project forward, I think Julius Creed is just an immense talent. He can cut promos. He is incredibly strong. He wrestles like no one's business. He's the perfect type of guy to get called up with Brutus, his brother, um, and have a really successful title-winning tag team for a number of years and then eventually break off and do his own thing. Let's not forget, we said something similar about the Street Profits and Montez Ford, and even though Ford has gotten a singular, pretty much, maybe two, individual opportunities, he hasn't really broken off. I'm not saying that they should break up. I'm just saying he hasn't really stepped out and gotten the singles opportunities we expected that he would. Julius Creed, though, I don't want to say he's more talented than Montez Ford because that's really not fair. Ford is incredibly talented. But he just really does seem to have that true entire package. Like, you know, white meat baby face, you know, a collegiate wrestler, Super strong, a legitimate, you know, rather than a brother, like as a really close friend who's a tag team partner, an actual brother 
who's the tag team partner. Even the name, Julius Creed, sets him up massively for success. The knock on him might be he has a little bit of like a Cody Rhodes type of like lisp a little bit when he speaks. I don't think that's too huge of a detractor from him. I I just, there's something there about Julius where I'm going to project him to it like a top level superstar on the main roster. And then on the women's side, you know, it's one of those, she's been absent. So it's really tough to kind of talk about her. But Sol Ruka, in the very short window that we saw her, it seemed like she was progressing at the same rate or perhaps even faster than Tiffany Stratton. And Soul has such a unique presence, the calm surfer girl, you know, chill dude type of presence that she has. Um, it almost seems like she could be the baby face parallel to the heel Tiffany Stratton, because even though Stratton can be a face, you can definitely get behind her. No question. She, for the vast majority of her career, is going to be a heel. So, you know, that's, I guess, seven names that I can give you. I know you you asked for one, but there isn't one individual where I can tell you they are going to be the greatest. I guess if I had to pick one, it would be Braun Breaker, just pedigree, talent, youth, um, strength. You know, they gave him a, you know, Roman Reigns, when he debuted, wasn't really the best name. And uh, Braun Breaker is very similar in that regard as well. But, you know, he has to be pigeonholed for a top spot. So he may have the best career out of any of them that we just mentioned, but that's a group of seven that if they get called up in the next one to three years, different times, depending on each talent, they're going to make a major impact on the main roster. So with that said, let's go ahead and move to AEW. And again, let me repeat, we will have the NXT head to head with AEW conversation after this segment before the show ends. And of course, we will mix together Dynamite, Collision, and Rampage. Everything we didn't already discuss on the AEW Wrestle Dream Instant Analysis will be in this segment. So on Dynamite, Chris Jericho and Kenny Omega fought Kyle Fletcher and Konosuke Takeshka. Adam Copeland interrupted a backstage babyface promo with the Canadians. He shook Jericho's hand. Omega made an edge quip. They shook hands too. Renee Paquette was also back there. All Canadians, really cute. Uh, Don Callis, in an interview taped earlier, announced that Sammy Guevara, who was, by the way, mentioned by Jericho and Omega as being in this match, was not medically cleared. Timeline-wise, this was before the Jericho and Omega promo, so they should have known that he wouldn't be in the match. Anyway, Fletcher was the replacement, and Callis said their goal was to win the war. The heels hit a blue thunderbomb and Mishinoku driver simultaneously. Fletcher took a V-trigger, like a gunshot, then he ate a codebreaker, a one-winged angel, and the L. Takeshka had been eliminated previously with a dragon suplex. I thought it was going to make sense for Fletcher to join Callus, given Mark Davis uh, snapped his wrist, so Aussie Open is done for the foreseeable future. And there's Will Ospreay, who's already in the group, but he's also a, a friend of Kyle Fletcher over in New Japan. It would give something for Fletcher to do, and it would increase the family size. Except Callis got really angry at Fletcher after the bell and pretty much made it clear he was not part of the family. Then powerhouse Hobbs wearing gloves for some reason attacked and took out both Omega and Jericho. He basically just hit Jericho like three different times and then Jericho was dead and he focused on Omega the rest of the time. Hobbs brought him into the crowd, ripped a wrong off a guardrail, trapped Omega's head in the empty space for like, I don't know, five seconds. And then he just removed it. Commentary told us the Jacksons went to the hospital after Nick Jackson's match earlier against uh, Ray Phoenix. We'll talk about that later. He also said Hangman Page was not there. 
That explained why none of the elite saved him. Omega got duct taped to the top rope and hit right in the head with an unprotected chair shot. Callus did a decent job protecting him. Looked like it was a gimmick chair as well. So I have to believe that it was safe or as safe as it could have been, especially in 2023. But that was really it. And I got to tell you, you know, powerhouse Hobbs attacking Omega and Jericho should be a big deal. But for me as a viewer, this was one of the slowest moving and most agonizing segments, maybe in AEW history. I'm not saying it's like worse than like some of the Brandy Rhodes confrontations or anything like that. But for a segment involving people of this caliber, it took forever. And I thought the entire purpose of this was to draw out the drama for an electric Adam Copeland save because, you know, they established a semi-friendship between them in the opening segment of the show. Copeland literally shook the hands of Jericho and Omega. He said he hates Callus, and they basically said to each other, hey, if any of us ever need anything, maybe we'll have each other's backs. Except Copeland never showed up. So this immensely boring, mind-numbing attack that hardly resulted in any damage. I mean, yeah, Kenny took a chair shot, but Jericho just like was like pushed out of the ring like he was a gnat. I could not make sense of this. How the fuck was this purposefully booked this way? And that's not even mentioning that the guys had no idea how to use duct tape and Omega's arms kept falling off of the top rope. When in history, you tie someone's arms between the top and the middle rope. They can't move. That's all you need to do. If you want to duct tape on top of that, fine. But it was just so odd from a visualization standpoint. I was straight up floored by this. Totally nonsensical. Hobbs and the Callis family. Okay, fine. It, there's zero connection between them. There was no explanation for it. Even if you weren't doing the Copeland save. If Kenny had like his head drooped and his arms out, you know, duct taped to the rope and Callis grabbed the mic and gave this big declaration of why Hobbs is now a member of the Callis family. That still could have worked, even if you didn't want to do Copeland. But they didn't do that. There was no babyface save. And this whole thing just like died an agonizing death. And I got to tell you, I did not think at any point when this match was happening, or even at the beginning of the attack, that I would come to this conclusion. But I, I, I got to be honest on the show. This was my conclusion. That is one big pile of shit. And then Jericho and Hobbs is announced for next week. So at least that makes sense, even though, again, Hobbs primarily attacked Omega. But you can just make the assumption that Omega is injured and Omega will probably make the save at the end of that match. So also on Dynamite, you had Copeland's interview or his promo, whatever you want to call it, main event the show. Fans did the first Adam chant I've ever heard, which obviously popped me, given that's my name. He said the AEW title would look good around his waist, and he's excited about the first-time matches that he could possibly have. He named a bunch of wrestlers. Copeland said the main reason he's in AEW is because his daughter said he should go have fun with Uncle Jay, a.k.a. Christian. Uh, he came out, and Copeland said, hey, we're best friends, and I did what I did at WrestleDream because you were going to kill Sting, who we idolized when we were younger. And he also said he did it because he knows Luchasaurus and Nick Wayne will use up Christian's brain and then drop him. He said it's time for them to tag up, become best friends again, and fight all the great AEW tag teams, prove that they're the best out of all of them. Christian took the mic. He opened his arms for a hug. 
only to say, go fuck yourself in a planned bleeped spot before walking out. Get it? Because it's the rated R era. So they said, fuck. Then he walked up to the stage with Luchasaurus and Wayne walking out. Nick actually looked really good next to Christian. The segment overall, it was okay, I guess. Like the curse got a smirk out of me, no doubt. It's one thing to build to like an electric promo segment when you have someone like CM Punk or John Moxley or Brian Danielson. Edge is a great promo, but in this case, it was just kind of like average. And I'm not quite sure they did enough to make the Luchasaurus debut match seem important. I wish I had more analysis here, but maybe the appearance on Collision is going to hit better. It just fell flat for me, even though the crowd was decently hyped. I guess I'm just used to AEW crowds being hype. So this one didn't seem extra or out of place like it does when MJF came out earlier in the show or previously, of course, when CM Punk would come in and cut a promo. It just seemed kind of muted to me by comparison. They were clearly hot. I want to be very honest about that. Um, But it just didn't hit the way I thought it was going to hit to see him out there doing what he did. I think something else that might have played into it is Copeland did like six major media interviews. And in them, he explained all of this already. He told the story about his daughter He talked about all the people he wanted to fight and his decision with WWE and how he actually almost legitimately retired. So maybe because I had read all of that, nothing he said in the promo was new to me and therefore it didn't mean anything because it was stuff I already knew. I could see being a viewer who had not read any of that, maybe this hit a lot better. So I'll give that benefit of the doubt there. On Collision, Best Friends fought the kingdom. Mike Bennett ate a driver into the top of the steel steps only to straight punch both of the best friends in the nuts before Kingdom combined to hit a spike pile driver for the win. I've always been frustrated with how best friends are booked. I'm not even a huge fan of them, but it just gets worse with every passing month. The whole punched in the wiener gimmick, I mean, what are we doing? You know, Matt Taven after the bell begged Adam Cole to meet them at Roderick Strong's hospital bed. I know many fans love this storyline. I truly hope the payoff is worth it. On Dynamite, we got the most appropriate celebration for AEW's four-year anniversary that we possibly could have gotten. They had horrible audio issues during a pre-taped video package. It is amazing that it's been four years of horrible audio issues. Sometimes it's AEW and it's production. Sometimes it's TBS or TNT back in the day. The fact that it aired perfectly fine on Fight and didn't work on TBS, it's just, (laughs) it's unbelievable. So I'm going to tell you my take on this, first watching it muted, and then watching it, obviously, when they replayed it later. What I gathered was that Roderick Strong bought Adam Cole one of those wheeled scooters that you can use when you have an injured foot or leg. They had fun wheeling around together for a bit, making the kingdom jealous. It got contentious after that, and I couldn't really tell why. Then Cole started lifting furniture with one arm for some reason. Uh, Roderick Strong was petting a giraffe. I presume it was a giraffe because it has a long neck. And then it ended with Cole looking back for some reason. So that was my take watching it muted. So like I said, they re-aired the segment about 10 minutes later. Here's the part that I missed. Strong said the emergency from last week was that he needed furniture moved. Cole somehow accepted the argument that he was the best one to do it and that this made sense because Kingdom doesn't know interior design. And he also somehow accepted that moving furniture was a legitimate emergency for feng shui reasons. Cole then went to leave after doing all this heavy lifting. 
and Cole said he still needed his help. The part with them wheeling around was fun. The rest of this is immensely stupid. Like, Adam Cole is not an idiot. In fact, his whole gimmick is that he's supposed to be smart and cunning. So why is he not pointing out the ridiculousness of this? I know Strong is his friend, but he already pushed him aside for MJF. So why is he now falling back into this, like, I'll do all this little shit for you when there's two other able-bodied men here? It just, it didn't make any sense what they were doing. Not so much what they were doing, because it made sense what Strong is doing. He's trying to gaslight him and he's trying to do this, this, and this. It didn't make sense why Cole was going along with it. On collision, Andrade El Idolo fought Juice Robinson. This stemmed from an attack on Andrade during the Jay White match last week. The guns got tossed late in the match, which I legitimately didn't know was possible in AEW. Andrade hit his perfect spinning back elbow. Juice barely kicked out before eating the hammerlock DDT for the babyface win. Really nice to see Andrade get a meaningful win on TV for a change. 3.5 stars B for match quality as well. Commentary spent a lot of time talking about the white attack from last week. That was obviously interesting that they did it during this match. On Dynamite Bullet Club Gold, Sands Jay White mocked MJF and Adam Cole, insisting he attacked White even after he denied all of it last week. MJF threw out some frankly mid-insults, but he got the crowd to dual chant ass boys and talentless taint. This is, by the way, after the big insult last week was tofu. So now we have tofu, talentless taint, and ass boys, which already existed. MJF went over some of the shitty things he's done in AEW, for the point of saying, if I did all those things, why would I not just tell you I attacked Jay White? He called them out for a Stockton street fight, only for the heels to dip out of the ring once he entered, and then White to attack MJF from behind with a really clunky sling blade. He was going to lay the title on MJF. Instead, he decided to steal it. He walked up the stage and said, they don't buy his attack explanation. White said AEW needs an elite champion and challenged MJF at full gear. MJF immediately accepted. My assumption here, was that White would get attacked for this title that he was stealing backstage and we do the devil again, but they never went back to it. So I'm not sure about all of you. This didn't hit as well for me as I expected. I'm very excited about MJF and Jay White as a match. The crowd seemed completely disinterested in White and obviously they were very hot for MJF throughout the entire segment. So I found that to be a little bit interesting as well. On Dynamite, Brian Danielson, after Full Dream, was emotional for being able to have a match of that quality in Seattle. Zack Sabre Jr. also had a pre-taped promo. He repeated that him being knocked out was not Brian living up to his promise of being the best technical wrestler. Then the whole thing suddenly ended. Hangman Page was injured after the match that he had with Swerve Strickland, and he talked about that in another promo package, suggesting maybe Swerve was onto something doing whatever it takes to win. We did not hear from Swerve on the show. Then... AEW promoted a Danielson versus Swerve match next week. It was a number one contendership for the TNT title. And I was thinking, why are these guys competing for a chance at the third string belt? Danielson, a multi-time world champion, beat Zack Sabre Jr., an active New Japan champion. Swerve beat Hangman Page, a former AEW champion and a current trios champion. How is this not for a world title number one contendership or at worst, a future international title match? There is such a frustrating lack of rhyme and reason in AEW for who gets title shots and the ways in which they get them. The TNT and TBS titles will be defended against randoms for weeks. And then suddenly there's a number one contendership. Same thing with the international and the trios titles. 
It is completely nonsensical. Also, they announced White versus Hangman next week for no reason whatsoever. Like the match is happening and there's no build to it. Like there's not even a a title opportunity on the line or a feud or anything. They're they're just doing Jay White and Hangman Page. On Dynamite, uh, the International Championship was on the line. Ray Phoenix against Nick Jackson. We mentioned this earlier. The brothers were ringside. Commentary filleted AEW for its anniversary for the first like three minutes of the match. Nick hit an avalanche cutter off the top rope, a poison rana, a rebound destroyer, and a one-man BTE trigger. Phoenix finally came back with a great frog splash for a false finish. Then he countered a pinning combination for the win because, as we've said so many times before, everyone has to be protected in AEW. Sarcasm aside, it actually did make sense to protect Nick in this spot. He's a trios champion. He's also a number one contender for the tag team titles. I'm now realizing that he was a champion and a dual number one contender simultaneously before this match began. Anyway, it was a fun opening match. Not my cup of tea, but definitely really exciting, strong action across. On Dynamite, Hook told Orange Cassidy backstage that he missed not being champion. Hook said Orange should be getting the international title match, not John Moxley. Orange said that he only held the title for 11 months versus a few weeks, clearly being sarcastic. And then the segment just ended. This was one of like one of those SNL skits where it doesn't have an ending. They just like cut to the next segment. Orange being depressed about the title makes all the sense in the world. The way they're going about it with Hook suddenly being his friend and teammate. I know it's been a few weeks now, but it's just kind of awkward. You have one guy that has charisma, but doesn't regularly show it as part of his gimmick. And another guy that lacks charisma, or at least a gimmick where he can use it. And he also is not allowed to show it based on his gimmick. It's very odd. Regarding the Mox title challenge, it obviously makes sense given Phoenix winning the title was not supposed to happen. One must assume they're going to flip it right back to Mox and get back on track with whatever story they were going to tell. Unfortunately for Phoenix, once again, even though, again, it was a happenstance situation, we learned that AEW and Tony Khan really just don't see him in Pentagon as singles performers who deserve any type of rocket strapped to them. I think they're both way better than that. On Collision, we got another edition of the Tony Storm interview series. This was good and unique character work from Storm, but there's not actually much to describe or take away from it, like for the purpose of this podcast. We've had two of these without anything actually happening. We got the final and third installment on Dynamite. She was more crazed here than she was in the first two and came to the realization that she's timeless. So we did three of these to come up with a gimmick name. You know what? At least it's a good gimmick name, Timeless Tony Storm. Sounds like a little WWE, but nevertheless, good name for her. So we had Tony Storm against Sky Blue on Dynamite. Sky was described as prolific. She's lost six straight singles matches coming into this. Storm came out with all her makeup smeared in a really plain black type of gear that you would wear in like the 1960s. The theme and graphics were a huge downgrade, I thought, from the same gimmick before she got the timeless nickname. Tony hit a short arm lariat. Then she threw the commercial herself right into the camera. She eventually hit a hip attack and Storm Zero for the win. I guess Tony watched like Sunset Boulevard a couple months ago because it seems clear that that's where the character is from. I love the character work. I'm not personally a fan of the presentation. Storm is also going to have a match on Collision. So now we're in this run where Storm wrestles pretty much on every show instead of Julia Hart, who basically did that for the last two weeks. On Rampage, Hikaru Shida and Ruby Soho fought for a number one contendership for the women's title held by Soraya. This got a good amount of time as the main event of Rampage. The finish came with Soho trying to use multiple weapons for the referee to just get knocked out. Soho hit Destination Unknown with no one to count. Then she failed using a kendo stick. So Shida hit her right in the head with it. 
and then hit a kick only for an official to run in late for a false finish. Soho hit no future, but Sheeta no-sold it with a katana and got the win. This was fun, clunky in parts. I didn't even realize what was at stake until like the match started. 3.25 stars and a B. Uh, Sheeta and Soraya in the title match was announced for Tuesday's show. There was no additional build on Dynamite. We'll see. Hopefully we get a little bit more on Collision. On Rampage, Eddie Kingston was cutting a promo ahead of WrestleDream when Jay Lethal and the crew stepped to him, saying he's unfit to be ROH champion. Basically, it seemed like they were setting the stage for Lethal to be the next challenger, which, you know, whatever. But then on Dynamite, we saw Stokely Hathaway for the first time in a long time. He announced the number one contendership match on Rampage with the winner challenging Kingston. But I thought that's what they were doing with Lethal last week. So regardless of any of that, I'm still not sure why this is on AEW television when there's a Ring of Honor show. On Dynamite, Wardlow fought Griff Garrison. The Wardlow return was a surprise. He came out in a different version of a singlet with hair kind of like Karrion Cross. Commentary told us he's more fearsome than ever before. Wardlow hit five power bombs for what was ruled a knockout win. Then he left through the crowd. He looked great physically. The new gear, the hair, I thought it was a career low look for him at least as far as I'm concerned. It really does seem like they're almost in a last chance situation with Powerhouse Hobbs and Wardlow. I believe both of their contracts are coming up and they're trying new gimmicks, new storylines with both of them bringing Wardlow back again. You know, we'll see what he does, but I hope there's another level to this gimmick because it seemed like mostly a worse version of the same stuff that we saw three and a half months ago and obviously a long time before that. On Dynamite, there was a trios title match for some reason. The acclaimed in Billy Gunn against Butcher Blade and Kip Sabian. The match ended moments after coming back from commercial. Excalibur didn't even call the finish because he announced the four matches for Dynamite next week. Acclaimed hit their new worst finisher to retain. Why these guys were challengers, I have no idea. The match came out of nowhere. Didn't make sense. I thought personally this was a incredibly uneventful Dynamite coming off a pay-per-view. That used to be a symptom of AEW where... They only had one pay-per-view every quarter and the dynamite after was almost like, okay, you know what? Let's just relax our brains and like reset and we'll figure out what to do in the coming weeks before the next pay-per-view. In this case, they've had three pay-per-views in a six-week span and the dynamites that have come after all in and all out were strong because they were building immediately to the next pay-per-view. Now it was very clear they got another six weeks, I think until full gear and they are so focused on building up this title Tuesday dynamite, which we will talk about momentarily, that this kind of, to me at least, felt pretty much like, I don't want to call it a mail-in episode, but they didn't really do much on this to make it individually a strong dynamite. I will also note before we continue, and you guys know I really do not talk about ratings that frequently here, uh, but we taped the show a little bit late here on Thursday, therefore the ratings came out and they are notable. Dynamite did 800,000 viewers, which was down 55,000 from last week and 184,000 from two weeks ago. Obviously, this is despite Adam Copeland appearing on the show. The demo was 0.28. So I believe they got fewer viewers than NXT without being head-to-head, but they did have a higher demo. I think NXT was 0.22. So really interesting situation here. No idea what's going to happen next week when they go head-to-head. But that is exactly the conversation that we're going to be having right now. So let's first lay out what is happening on NXT next week and what is going to be happening on AEW Dynamite. So on NXT, the two major matches being promoted are Carmelo Hayes against Braun Breaker and 
Roxanne Perez against Asuka. The caveat for the men's match, of course, is that John Cena and Paul Heyman will be in their respective corners, Cena for Hayes and Heyman for Breaker, in that match. Of course, they also are going to have a special major announcement from Cody Rhodes. And I think it's fair to presume, even though I don't know that they specifically mentioned it, that Becky Lynch as the NXT Women's Champion and Dominic Mysterio as the NXT North American Champion will likely be on that show as well. That's not even counting, of course, like Baron Corbin and other main roster people who are down there right now doing some level of work. So just to kind of count it off, right? It's Cena, Cody, Heyman, Asuka making rare kind of first-time appearances, at least in this version of NXT, along with Becky and Dom, who do have a legitimate reason more so to be there. So six main roster talents will be on that show, and there will, of course, be two significant matches, one involving one of those talents, Asuka, and the other being a um, NXT stand-and-deliver main event rematch. I think it's the third time. I know it's the third time that these guys will be fighting. Of course, this is the first time without a title. So pretty significant stuff from NXT. In terms of AEW, what they will be doing also on Tuesday, which is being called a title Tuesday show. The big attraction, at least seemingly, would be Adam Copeland's first AEW match. He will be fighting Luchasaurus. We will also have Jay White against Hangman Page, as mentioned. We will have Brian Danielson against Swerve Strickland for the number one contendership for the TNT title, which, as I mentioned earlier, was a frustration for me. We will also have Soraya defending the women's title against Hikaru Shida and Chris Jericho against Powerhouse Hobbs. Now, certainly there's the possibility that there are surprises on the show and there's possibility that there's surprises on NXT as well, but that is the layout uh, for those two shows. So you get an idea that both programs, NXT and AEW Dynamite, are loading up their respective lineups for this coming Tuesday. Now, let me also explain the situation here. AEW Dynamite, obviously, normally airs on Wednesday. However, both TBS and TNT, I believe it's baseball playoffs on TBS and NHL on TNT, are going to have sports programming. Therefore, Dynamite basically has nowhere to air unless perhaps they put it on earlier in the day. They basically had to move nights. And moving it to Tuesday makes the most sense because number one, they're not gonna put it on Friday where they already have a show. Number two, they're not gonna put it on Thursday up against the NFL, which Tony Khan doesn't wanna do. And they're certainly not gonna be putting it on Monday against both the NFL and WWE. So AEW did not have any other option but to move to Tuesday. And obviously NXT, quote unquote, owns Tuesday night. That is where they have been airing for you know, two and a half years at this point, ever since they left Wednesday, which let's also remember was their original night on WWE Network. And then of course, Dynamite happened. They went to TV. Dynamite won that ratings battle and USA Network decided, hey, why are we fighting a ratings battle when we can just get better ratings for the show, putting it on Tuesday where we have an open slot. So that's the history behind all of this happening. Let's also note here, AEW had previously announced Title Tuesday. They announced immediately after Wrestle Dream that Adam Copeland's debut match would be on this Title Tuesday show. They could have done it on Dynamite this Wednesday. They could have done it on Collision this coming Saturday. They specifically chose to put it on this Tuesday show, which again, I will repeat, already had a special moniker, Title Tuesday. 
So what needs to be remembered beyond all that background I just gave you is that WWE is literally in the midst of trying to get new TV rights deals for Raw and NXT. And AEW is doing its best to ensure its ratings stay high because it in 2024 will be negotiating a new television deal, presumably with Warner Brothers um, to just get more money, but possibly other networks as well. AEW historically, when it does have shows move nights, gets absolutely creamed, not just because of competition, but because their audience doesn't shift from one night to another, as well as perhaps sometimes in the past, WWE's might. Let's also not forget WWE, when it has SmackDown on Friday night and Fox can't air it because of something having to do with sports and it moves to FS1. Now there is the natural network versus cable. Cable's in fewer homes than network. It's harder to find, but even WWE has problems transitioning channels and AEW has this problem as well, let alone changing nights. So AEW is putting a big foot forward for this Tuesday show to get it in the consciousness of their fans that they not only need to tune in Tuesday instead of Wednesday, but to motivate them to tune in Tuesday because it's going to be a high quality episode of Dynamite. NXT, which is always on Tuesday nights, sees this happening and says, oh, well, guess what? Number one, we have to like protect our turf. We know this is our night. We don't want AEW Dynamite to just move over to Tuesday and crush us potentially. I don't know that it would have. It's very possible that just having Becky Lynch and Dominic Mysterio on NXT and maybe announcing one other special person coming down, a Seth Rollins or a Jey Uso or something like that, that may have been enough to stem off the tide of what AEW is doing. But WWE is in a position where they're not just competing with AEW going on that night, they're competing with Edge wrestling on that show. And they're competing with Title Tuesday, which they may not have known all the bookings, but clearly AEW is going to make into a big show. So NXT sees that and they say, well, we're trying to get a media rights deal too. We don't want to make it look like we are a clear number two, or even if it's our developmental quote unquote show, we don't want to look like we're a clear number two to AEW where they can just come over to our night and grab all of our audience. But on top of that, for the same reason that AEW is trying to maintain its rating when changing nights, NXT is trying to maintain its rating success. Their ratings have been going up. They want to maintain that when AEW comes over to their night. So in WWE's mind, they're sitting there thinking, okay, AEW's coming over. We have to hold our ground. It's not just about winning over uh, AEW, which certainly they want to do. They want to maintain. They want to make sure that the 800, 850 some weeks, 790, 750,000 people who are tuning into that show still tune in, even though AEW is also on the same night. I think any fans who care about this or think about it you know, from the standpoint of WWE is giving AEW a middle finger by putting all these big names on their show is missing the entire point. WWE is doing this for the same reason that Becky Lynch is champion, that Dominic Mysterio is champion, that Baron Corbin is on that show, that other main roster talent is occasionally making cameo appearances. They are shopping NXT to networks. They want to pop ratings on their own. And now faced with competition that they didn't ask for on that night, 
they want to make sure that they do everything in their possible power to continue that trend. WWE would be doing this against any major competition on that night. I don't necessarily know whether like John Cena would potentially be there if it was an NFL Monday night game that got moved to Tuesday or something else happened, uh, the presidential debates or, you know, one of these other big ticket items. Maybe Cena is like a little bit of an extra piece of juice here. But everything else they would do, and by the way, have done previously to stem off the tide of losing viewers against competition. It is a ratings battle. It is not a fuck you, no, fuck you type of situation. I don't believe that AEW put the Adam Copeland match on this night to stick it to NXT. I believe they did it to ensure their ratings stayed strong despite them being on a different night. And it's the same reason why I believe WWE did this. So if you are in this vortex of IWC bullshit, where you have a certain newsletter writer, uh, when this came out, sending a tweet that says, all these people saying WWE doesn't consider AEW competition sure look foolish tonight. Well, of course, AEW is competition. Who has ever said that AEW is not competition for WWE? What WWE has said is that AEW is one part of a large group of companies and organizations that are competition for them, along with the NFL, music, Netflix, et cetera, et cetera. So let's be very clear about that. And then if you're a certain website owner who sends a tweet coming out of NXT that says, I'm sure WWE is going to say publicly that having John Cena and Cody Rhodes on NXT has nothing to do with the fact that AEW Dynamite airs on next Tuesday, along with Adam Copeland in action. Number one, why would WWE address that publicly at all? Number two, I'm quite sure that AEW scheduling Copeland's debut match and booking title Tuesday for this episode has nothing to do with the fact that they're worried about their rating moving nights and going up against NXT on Tuesday. So like this idea that the whole situation is a middle finger from AEW to WWE and then a double middle finger back to AEW, it's patently ridiculous. What it is, is competition. And this is what is supposed to happen when situations like this arise. Both programs, NXT and Dynamite, will be better Tuesday than they otherwise would have been because they happen to be going head to head. Now, as a viewer, am I happy about this? No, I like compartmentalizing my wrestling. I like having NXT on Tuesday. I like having AEW on Wednesday. It's actually way too much for me to watch both shows in the same night. So chances are, I probably will not watch AEW until Wednesday. And by the way, one of the reasons for that, I'm heavily considering making the three-hour drive up north and going to my first NXT in the Performance Center this coming Tuesday. I, what I understand, it's going to be a double episode. I think they're taping uh, both. Of, obviously, this week is going to be live, but I also think they're going to be taping the October 17th show the same night. So I, the Silver King, have every reason in the world to go to this, and I think I'm going to because how many opportunities do you get to watch John Cena, Cody Rhodes, Becky Lynch, Asuka, and Paul Heyman in what amounts to like a bingo hall, right? Like there's only like three, 400 people at this show anyway. So the fact that I could possibly be there for that seems like a really unique and exclusive opportunity. Point being, I may be at NXT on Tuesday. I'll tell you more about that uh, maybe Saturday. I'll probably make the decision uh, before we tape the instant analysis episode. But I digress. There's nothing wrong with AEW doing what it's doing. There's nothing wrong with WWE doing what it's doing. But to suggest for anyone, and I got a tweet about this. I'm not gonna call the person out because he's a loyal listener and I like him very much, but to suggest 
that WWE should see AEW coming. Like, like it's imagine you're in a war and WWE, they're on the shore and they see the boats coming in and to suggest that they should kick their feet up and say, yeah, yeah, let them come. We're fine. Our show on its own is good enough to stem off a entire quote unquote main roster with names like Edge and Chris Jericho and Jay White and Kenny Omega and all these awesome names. They should put their feet up on the top of their barricade and say, yeah, let them come. We'll be fine. As opposed to like battening down the hatches and throwing some flaming rocks into the water to try to knock off these ships. That is an asinine contention as it is to say that WWE is doing something wrong here while AEW is blameless for stacking up a show going head to head with NXT. It's a ridiculous conversation. It's tribal. I mean, Adam Copeland, we literally read on Tuesday's show, his tweets about wrestling fans, how they shouldn't be tribal and how it's ridiculous. Yet here they are being tribal days later in a situation where, by the way, Copeland is going to be wrestling directly head to head against NXT. So I just wanted to point that out. I felt like it needed to be said. I know we took, you know, 10, 12 minutes to discuss it, but the quality of these shows, NXT and Dynamite, are not going to be affected by whatever the rating is on Tuesday. If you're asking me, well, Silver King, which show do you think is going to get the better rating? It's really tough to say. I got to be honest. AEW, they have a very loyal audience. We have seen that they ha- they struggle uh, when moving nights and the audience following them, but they've put enough things on this show. I mean, for me, the match of the night is going to be Brian and Swerve. I don't really care about the rest. That's going to be the match of the night for me. Um I think there's a huge loyal audience that could shift over there at the same time. If they did 800 this week and then next week, really all they're offering is Copeland's first match. And he spoke for the first time on Wednesday. Is it going to do that much better? I don't necessarily know the answer to that. What I do know historically from NXT is just Becky Lynch being on that show or Seth Rollins. We saw it previously adds like 175 to 200,000 viewers. So then if they're promoting on Monday night, and probably Friday too. And John Cena, Cody Rhodes, Asuka, and Paul Heyman are also going to be there. I mean, NXT could crack a million. I I don't know. It depends how much that crossover audience exists between NXT and AEW. But NXT, I I will say this, it should hold its own and possibly do better. I think it's probably going to win the rating, but I don't know that it's a huge... Let me put it this way. If you wanted to take it from like a who takes the win, who takes the loss standpoint. I think NXT putting that many superstars of name value on the show, if they were to lose the viewership and the demo to AEW, that would be pretty disheartening. If AEW was to lose, I don't think it's that big of a deal at all, especially given who's already on there. If WWE had not loaded up this episode, which is a reality that does not exist, and still beat AEW, I wouldn't take that to mean one thing or the other for either brand. So I guess it's a lose-lose situation for WWE perhaps to do it this way. But again, that's not the context in which I view it. So there you go. That's my treatise on this uh, NXT AEW one-time Tuesday night war coming up next week. And certainly uh, we will be here on the podcast to discuss it. I guess probably Wednesday we will have to have an episode rather than Thursday, given everything that I just talked about. But if I do go to Orlando, we will have to see how that fits, of course, with my travel schedule. Before we get to all the reminders on the way out of this episode, let me just tell you about what we've already done this week and last week. I hope no one has missed our two-part 500th episode spectacular 
Last week, we sat down for a conversation with none other than the American Dragon, Brian Danielson. This week, we sat down for a conversation with WWE's megastar, L.A. Knight. Yeah, you definitely don't want to miss those interviews, so be sure to look in the podcast archives wherever you're listening to this and hit up both of those. Obviously, we have the WWE Fastlane Ultimate Preview that was published on Tuesday. And of course, coming up this Saturday, we will have WWE Fastlane Instant Analysis as soon as that show goes off the air. Okay, let's get to those reminders. First, the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. It's all about Defy. So please remember to leave five-star ratings for us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Take a little extra time, leave a five-star written review on Apple. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, all of that good stuff. You also get to vote in pre- and post-show polls every single premium live event and pay-per-view. Obviously, you will have the chance to do that for WWE Fastlane on Saturday. I should also mention, which I've forgotten to do in all of our shows this week, Getting Over is now on TikTok. Follow us on TikTok at Getting Overcast. We will be posting video clips from our interviews. We already have a couple up for Brian Danielson and LA Knight. We will come back with some old ones from our archives as well. So again, be sure to follow us on TikTok at Getting Overcast. We're still considering YouTube stuff. I would love to publish all of our interviews in full video on YouTube. I don't have the time to manage it. If anyone out there is someone who professionally, ideally, or even from an amateur standpoint, knows how to operate YouTube and does it uh, for themselves or for an organization or a friend or whatever the case in a pretty professional manner, we would love and be interested in someone helping us with YouTube. It's not that I can't do it. I just don't have the time to do it. So if you are interested in helping us with our social media, whether it's that, whether it's Instagram, TikTok, whatever, uh, email us, gettingoverpod at gmail.com. But like I said, I would really prefer to have someone with notable experience in that area if we're going to hand over you know, a significant portion of the show uh, to them. But again, you can follow us on Twitter and TikTok at gettingovercast. Please also remember here at Getting Over. I happen to love the number... Five. And I hope you do as well for $5 a month or 50 for the entire year. You can become an official getting overhead. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Sign up. You'll get bonus instant reaction audio to every major TV show. And we will have news posts for you, exclusive information every single week. Again, don't forget to become an official getting overhead. Buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Thank you all for listening to this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. We will be back Saturday and again Tuesday. But at this point, it is time for the Silver King to sign off and leave you with just three final words. Bye for now.